The scripture reading is from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Occasionally I'll be asked, uh, how do we put the teaching series together? And the answer to that is, during my summer study leave, I will typically start prayerfully thinking through, what is it that I sense that the church needs? It's just really a gut sense. I don't have a crystal ball or anything like that. And it's always intriguing to see uh, what the Lord will do in terms of timing. And you just heard that passage read, especially verses 1 and 2, especially about praying for kings, rulers, the government. And you think about the last two weeks, and you think to yourself, my gosh, what timing for such a time as this. Here we are in a series called Letters to a Son. Paul wrote a couple of different letters to Timothy, who was his disciple, an early convert in the church of Ephesus. And now Timothy essentially is the pastor in that church. And if you were here last week, we talked about the false teachers who had infiltrated, as it were, the church there in Ephesus. And Paul is instructing Timothy on how to confront, how to deal with those false teachers. But beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, he switches gears. Now he talks about what does the godly life look like in the church? What is it intended to look like? And the very first thing he says is prayer. The very first mark of the church, he says, is prayer. And this morning we're going to talk about about that specifically. And not just about government leaders, but prayer in general. And But basically Paul says this, that if we can learn to pray the way that he's describing it here in the text, a number of things are going to happen. Number one, God will be pleased. That's in verse 3. But then he goes on to say, especially, salvation will come to the nations. And so to unpack that, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask a series of questions of prayer. Uh, First of all, we're going to say, well, who is it that we pray for? Second, what is it that we pray for? And then finally, why do we pray? That really is the, the key, the motivator. So first, jumping in here, who is it that we pray for? And four different times, in just a few verses, Paul tells us and gives us the word all. So it's all people, essentially, here. And the reason why that's important is, is that, remember, Paul has just got through teaching Timothy or instructing Timothy regarding the false teachers. The false teachers, part of the issue we knew from last week, and this will happen, it'll echo throughout the chapters in 1 Timothy, is that the false teachers are just giving a gospel for a certain select group of people, namely the Jews. Uh, basically, how to follow the law better, basically. And Paul, in various places, including in Ephesus, has had to confront that false teaching. And part of the issue, evidently, the context here, is that because of that, they weren't praying broadly, right? That, that's the reason, why, the way, in verse 7, Paul says, look, I'm an apostle with authority called by Jesus Christ himself, not just for the Jews, but who does he say? The Gentiles. In other words, the word all here means all without distinction, without category, all sorts of types of people, not just a certain select group of people, in other words. 
Now, here's why I think that's so important for us 2,000 years later. I think that part of the challenge for us individually and as a church family is that typically, or at least the temptation, is that we will pray small prayers. We'll pray small prayers within just a few concentric circles of us as individuals. But what Paul is saying is that if you learn to pray, you learn to pray big. You learn to pray in in ways that, that are unimaginable. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, reflected on a story. He said this, Some years ago, I attended public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on holiday, and a lay elder led the pastoral prayer. He prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which was also fine. We should pray for the sick. But that was all. The intercession can hardly have lasted 30 seconds. I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshipped a little village god of their own devising. There, were, there was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. I will tell you firsthand as your pastor, guilty as charged. Uh, there, I can't tell you how many times where, where I just have not thought globally, or I haven't thought as, as Paul does four times the word all here, thinking in terms of the bigger picture prayers as, as it were. Some of you know that every year, minus the pandemic, I typically will go to India and I train and work with different church planning pastors. They're all natives and indigenous to the various language groups that that make up India. And it's always profoundly touching and moving to see their lives. Most of them are are deeply impoverished. Uh, Many of them have experienced firsthand persecution. And let me tell you, by being in India, by being with those saints, it changes how I pray. It, it changes the, the nature of my prayers. I come home praying in different ways and, and out of sight, out of mind, how quickly I can so go back to, in essence, what Stott says, the village God, and begin to just think about immediate circles around me, my immediate family, and, and maybe this immediate church. But Stott's right and Paul's right, that we were intended to pray big. And so the very first thing I want you to see is, who, is it that we, who do we pray for? We pray for all peoples everywhere. That this needs to become a rhythm of our hearts as we pray. But here's the other word I want to focus on, and that is the word rulers. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. When I was preparing this week for this passage, and it had been six months since I had planned this passage, and I looked at verses 1 and 2, and I said, oh my gosh, what a perfect time. This is the lowering the boom for us in light of the last two weeks in particular. I was with one of our uh, elders, John Francis. We were doing a Zoom call together. He, he and Meredith are, as many of you know, they're on a two-year stint working for the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. It was beautiful. It was snowing uh, while we were on the Zoom call. I was very jealous. And, and so I said, well, man, what's it like to be in Switzerland right now as an American? And he's like, oh, my gosh. He said, he got honest. He's like, man, it's, it's kind of a nice break right now. <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, he, he said, in Europe... Like, there are different political persuasions, but people are not fractious. Like, they, they don't fight in ways that, that, would, that would 
bring shame upon themselves. Like they just they look at us and they're mystified sometimes by how Americans fight. He says, honestly, it's it's a nice break from that right now. And as you heard me share that with you, immediately you thought about just the stress that you've been carrying the last two weeks in particular, about the events that happened in the Capitol. And what I want you to hear this morning is that that when Paul says to pray for your rulers, I want you to think about who was it that he was thinking of? You know who the emperor was at the time that Paul was writing these words? Nero. Nero was one of the most cruel and ruthless emperors that Rome ever saw, and that's saying something. In fact, Nero would be responsible for putting Paul to death a few years later. And what is it that Paul is saying to the church? Pray for Nero. Pray that salvation would come. Pray God's blessings, in essence, upon him. Now, what does that mean for us today? Here's where I want to lower the boom on our hearts. Okay. If you're a Republican right now, you're about to go into exile, politically speaking, right? We all know that. And, and I want to say to you, like, what does it look like for you, not just to pray for, for fellow Republicans, okay? It, it, you know, I mean, let's be honest, no matter what your political persuasion is, no matter what your ideology is, like, it's, sometimes it's hard enough to remember to pray for, pray for your friends, much less your enemies here. But as you prepare for exile, politically speaking, you know, I want to ask you, like, are you willing to pray for the president-elect? Are you willing to pray for his new cabinet? Are you willing to, to pray for his administration? Are you willing for those, and whoever that is, fill in the blank, to pray God's blessing upon them? And likewise, if you're a Democrat, let me lower the boom as well for you and ask you this. Have you been praying for President Trump? Are you willing to pray for him these not last three to four days of his administration? Are you willing to pray God's blessings upon him and his cabinet? And then for all the Republicans who are about to go into exile, right? You know, Regardless of what your persuasion is, hear what Paul is saying, hear what the Lord is saying, hear what I'm saying to you today, that to, as he says here at the end of verse 2, that if we're to live a godly and dignified life, we must pray for our leaders. And I'm going to tell you, I'm a political science major. You know, I, if there's anyone in this church that is fascinated and passionate about politics, it, it's probably me. I know some of you are probably in the same boat as I am. But I have a very difficult time remembering day-to-day to to pray for all leaders of all stripes, much less those that maybe have a different ideological bent to me. And so I think part of where, where we need to see where the rubber meets the road here is, are we praying for those that it may be difficult for us naturally to pray for? Paul says the great test of that is right here, praying for your rulers, praying for uh, those influencers in our life, politically, socially, economically, and so forth. N.T. Wright puts it this way, don't rest content with the simplistic agendas of the world that suggest you should either idolize your present political system or be working to overthrow it. Oh my gosh, has he been reading our mail the last couple of weeks? Try praying for your rulers instead and watch not only what God will do in your society, but listen to this, but also how your own attitudes will grow, change, and mature. Did you hear what he's saying there? This is what Paul's saying. That that prayer doesn't just change things out there. 
it changes us in here. Part of the role of prayer is to change our own hearts. And in the case of enemies, political and otherwise, it is to soften our hearts. A number of years ago, there was someone that I was unreconciled with, someone that had caused me harm, uh, who had violated me. And for, for a long period of time, probably a number of weeks after these events took, took place, it was hard for me to even want to pray for them. Okay? God's honest truth. But eventually, the Lord began to soften my heart, and I began to hear this call to pray for blessing. Now, part of that was for repentance, that they, they would come to, to know the Lord, and part of that would be through repentance. But as I began to pray for them, God deeply softened my heart, where I could legitimately, in my, my motivations of my heart, was that they would experience God's compassion. I wanted that for them. And so whether it's a faraway leader in Washington, D.C., local leader, your spouse, it's your neighbor, whoever it might be. The question is, is are you allowing the Spirit to soften your heart by praying for all people? So, who do we pray for? All people without distinction. But especially, Paul says right now, our rulers, our leaders. So that begs this question. If that's true, and some of you may be saying, okay, Scott, I'm hearing on that. Uh, I'm, I'm, there's some conviction maybe going on, whatever. But what is it exactly that I need to now pray for for them? Three things. I'm glad that you asked that question. Let me answer it. The verses 3 and 4 tell us, first of all, salvation. Listen to what it says there. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul, Paul is saying this, that that if we learn to pray as we're intended to pray, we will begin to pray God's desires down upon this world. That there'll be a direct correlation. There'll be a direct alignment. In fact, it's one of the things that the disciples ask Jesus, Luke chapter 11. They say, Jesus, teach us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, praise be your name. Then what does he say next? Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, may there be a, just a complete 100% alignment. And one day we know that in the book of Revelation, it says that heaven and earth will be one, but what the prayer does is that God, close the gap. Let us in our own time see how you're going to close that gap between heaven and earth. And so this is saying, God, I want your desires, your perfect desires that you're experiencing in full in heaven. I want the whole world to experience those things today and here, which which leads me to say this, that if you're here today, we're not really here today, you're out there, but wherever you are, if you're saying, man, I want change to come to our world, maybe because of the events of the last couple of weeks, or maybe the last, you know, fill in the blank, however long you're thinking of, or maybe it's something that's not political, there's something else that you're thinking of in the world, you're saying, I want change to come to the world. Paul tells us, how do you bring that change to the world? He says, salvation. It is in salvation. Now, when you hear that word salvation, if you were raised in an evangelical community like I was, you probably think, well, well, salvation is simply proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life. Now, is that what salvation means? Yes, but it's more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Salvation 
that Paul is describing here is beginning with having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But the salvation, very clearly the context here, is that the nations will be blessed because of it. I mean, it's why it says there at the end of verse 2, the peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That salvation would come in such a way that the whole world would be blessed. And so, what do we pray for when we think about the kings, when we think about the rulers, when we think about praying for all sorts of people, pray for salvation, that salvation would come. That's only the first thing. But here's the second thing, and it's related to that. We pray for wisdom. Very clearly here in verses 1 and 2, when he talks about the rulers and leaders, I mean, think about how is it that we get what he says after that? He says that we might have a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And the only way that's possible is that in God's grace, he gives wisdom to our leaders so that we might have the opportunity to experience his welfare in our life and for the world. And so I think that we need to adopt the same strategy that, that the prophet Jeremiah points out. If you know the story of Jeremiah, you know that, that Jeremiah was a prophet to the exiles. And I think that's appropriate because I think in a post-Christian world, we are intended to see ourselves here as a church as a people in exile. And what Jeremiah says in Babylon, where they're in exile, the, the context is that, that they want to go back to Israel. They want to go back to Jerusalem, in other words. They want to go back home, and false teachers are teaching that that's about to take place. But Jeremiah's like, not so fast. You're going to be here for a while. And so this is what he says, chapter 29, verse 7. He says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Jeremiah is very clearly saying that as it goes well with the pagans, it's going to go well with you. So if you look around, and let's go back to the idea here, the political order of things, and you see things that tick you off, you know, that, that, that get under your skin, pray for wisdom. Pray for blessing to come upon the very people who who are causing you, be a thorn in your side, wherever it is that you want to describe it as, ask that God would bring them wisdom. And, and here's what, I hope you're hearing this properly, because what I'm saying is that we should desire blessing for our lives. We should desire God's welfare for our lives, but he's couching it in terms of blessing for the nation. He says, look, pray big prayers. Pray for the whole world. And then as a result of that, you yourself will receive the blessing. You yourself will receive the joy, you see. see you see, the, our, our, the village God prayers are, are selfish prayers. They're, they're prayers that are just about me, myself, and I, essentially. But when you learn to pray big, when, once you learn how to pray global, as it were, as Paul is describing here, not only do you get the blessing, but the nations get the blessing, which is the very whole, whole vision from the Old Testament to the New. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Therefore, you will be a blessing to the nations. Are you beginning to feel it as I teach this? How different that sort of prayer life can be and what that looks like. And at least the last thing here on, on, on what is it that we pray for, and the last thing is stability. 
First thing there was salvation, wisdom, now stability. Look again at verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a what? A peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. A peaceful and quiet life. Paul is not, by the way, in case you're wondering, saying uh, what I'm praying for is a middle class existence. No, that is not. In fact, he talks about persecution uh, later on here in the letter, so that cannot be what he means by that. But what he does mean is what was referred to back in the ancient times as the Pax Romana. It's Latin for the Roman peace. And what that meant was that in the Mediterranean world where Paul was, there was a, a general peace about the land. There weren't that many wars and many conflicts going on relative to other times in Roman Empire history. And so what Paul is, is saying here is that pray for Pax Romana. Pray that, that the nations would experience freedom from conflict, that the, that the rulers would, would rule with wisdom so that there would be stability in the land. This Wednesday will, will be perhaps the most fractious transition of power in our known lifetime, given the events of the last several weeks, as I mentioned. Has there been a better time in your lifetime to pray for stability than now? Don't you see again how for this passage, for such a time as this, that we would have stability, that the nations would have stability, that the peoples of this country and of this world would experience stability. And why does Paul want that? Well, for a lot of reasons I've already mentioned, but one of the things that happened, if you know anything about the story of Paul, is that, that Paul was a remarkable itinerant evangelist and church planter who traveled all around the known Roman world. Well, how did that happen? Pax Romana. That's how that happened. The, 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 the transportation system was, at, for its time, excellent. And because there was so much peace and conflict relative to to other time periods. There was freedom for him to move about and plant churches. God leveraged that. God gave them Pax Romana, I would say, so that the kingdom of God, that the church would be planted and would move out. And so why do we want Pax Romana? Why do we want Pax Americana? Why do we want peace for all peoples globally so that the gospel would be experienced by more people? That's just, that's just, brass tacks here of what it means to experience stability politically, economically, and so forth. There becomes a a place now, a foundation for people to experience more, have ears to hear, and eyes to see the Word of God living and active. I think that's what it's saying here. And so who is it that we pray for? All people without distinction, but specifically right now, rulers, government leaders, and so forth. What do we pray for? Salvation, wisdom, stability. But here's where I end. Why? Because none of that other stuff matters that I've said unless we're clear on the why. What is it that God is doing? Why is it? Three things. Here's where we close. Number one, very quickly. Because Paul tells us it's our first priority. I mean, that's how verse 1 begins here. He says, first of all, as I mentioned, we're about to go into a section here on the marks of the church, and the very first thing he says is pray. And so, what is he saying? He's saying, keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your focus. Keep the main thing the main thing as you do the work of the Lord in your lives between the Sundays. Right? He says, so, so prayer needs to be the first work of our hearts, as I think is what he's saying. But moving on very quickly here, for the sake of time, 
He says this, secondly, because it's God's desire. Why pray? Because this is what He desires, right? Verse 3, it's what, what pleases Him. Now, let me deal with an elf in the room. I don't have time to go in this for the sake of time, right? But we have theology classes. Once we're on the other side of the pandemic, we'll have those again here. But it begs this question, when it says all here, there's this gap, right, between saying, well, well, all people, and yet at the same time, there are many people who don't know Him, who died not knowing Him. So what does all mean here? Well, here's the, where context is so important. Every single time that Paul deals with all here, he's not saying every single person in the world. Think about it this way. If you are in a classroom with your teacher and the teacher says something to the effect of, is everyone here? Your first thought isn't, well, there's 7 billion people in the world, teacher. Uh, I don't think everyone's here. No, you're, you're thinking, well, I'm looking around the room. Well, there are, uh, there, there are 10 of us in class, 15 of us. Is everyone here? Yes, everyone's here on the Zoom call or in person, right? Everyone's here. And so when Paul says that he desires that all people would come to know him, what he's saying is all sorts of people, all people without distinction here. I think that's why context is so important. I mean, it makes sense in light of other things that Paul says that's in keeping with what Paul has said elsewhere. Again, for the sake of time, I can't go further into that. It's a mystery, certainly. God's sovereignty and our freedom. But suffice to say, Paul's main point, my main point here, is that we would pray his desires. That if it is the Lord who desires that all people would have knowledge of him, would come to salvation with him, this is what motivates us to pray. And to say, I need to, you know, man, I can't imagine that person coming to know him, but I pray that he does. And watch what God does. Again, as I said, watch what he does in your own heart. But he tells us right there again in verse 3 that this is pleasing to him. So why should we pray? It's a priority. It pleases him. But here's the last thing. Here's the most important thing. Nothing else matters like without this as a foundation. Because he makes it very clear here that Jesus Christ is the very center of our prayer and the very fuel for our prayers. Look at verses 5 and 6. For there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Most of the audience in Ephesus was at least familiar with Judaism, or many of them were Jewish, as we mentioned last week. And so they would have been familiar with the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel! The Lord your God, the Lord is one. In a, in a polytheistic culture, surrounded by, by many gods in that pagan world, both in the Old Testament and what we now call the New Testament, but the Greco-Roman world, their world, there were many gods to choose from, as it were. And what Paul is reminding him is that, that salvation can only come through one God, the one who is the only true living God, all the other gods being false gods. Paul knows that. Paul's been teaching that, and Paul is saying, because of that, there's one mediator. What is a mediator? There's two key words here that I want to focus on here we'll close. The first one is mediator. A mediator is someone who comes between two people in order to connect them. And so right here he says, that mediator is between God and men. Who is it? Christ Jesus himself. And what is it that the mediator Christ Jesus did? He tells us right after that, that he gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus elsewhere, Mark 10, 45, mentioned that as well. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a what? A ransom for many. What is a ransom? Maybe you'll see a movie, a television show, where someone will be kidnapped. And you'll hear about a ransom. We know what that is. It's it's a payment. If you want to see them free, if you want to see them back with you, you have to pay this amount of money. What is Paul saying? Paul said that we were enslaved to sin. We were in darkness. We were dead. And Jesus Christ, He came along and He paid the debt. He paid the payment to free us from death itself. Don't you see? Before Paul can say in verse 1 that we would be intercessors, don't you see what Jesus Christ did for you in ransoming His life for you and for me? He interceded for us. Do you remember what, what Jesus said, His last words, or some of His last words on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What was He doing? He was praying to the Father. What was He doing? He was interceding. See, before we can intercede for the nations, before we can intercede for the President of the United States, for the senators, for the local officials, the mayor, for those around us and our families, before we can intercede for any of those people, Jesus Christ had to first intercede for you and for me. And He did. And He ransomed His life. His blood poured out for the sins of the remission of those sins for many people. You see, that is the only true fuel for prayer that matters. If Jesus Christ has ransomed your life, it gives you power and it gives you motivation to intercede for all people, whether they believe in your God or not. So normally here at the end of my sermon, I would pray. But I'm not going to pray. I'm inviting one of our elders, Jim Doles, to come up and pray. Because what I want you to see here, I want us to practice what I just preached. I want you to see a model of what it looks like to pray for the nations. What does it look like to pray for all people without distinction? What does it look like to pray for rulers? What does it look like to pray for salvation, wisdom, and stability? What can we do with our children, with our families? What can we do with our neighbors? What can we do as a church individually and collectively? And so to end the sermon, Jim's going to pray as we do the prayers of the people normally before the sermon, but now he's going to do it afterwards. So Jim, I want to invite you now to lead us in the prayers of the people for the saints and others. Let's pray together for all of God's people and for all people around the world according to their needs. God, our Father, you have united us in Christ by your Spirit, that though we are not all present together physically, we are united throughout time and space by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the redemption and mediation of our Lord Jesus. God, we lift up your church around the world, worshiping you, honoring you. We remember especially our brothers and sisters who worship in places where it is outlawed, where it is persecuted, where you, Lord, are persecuted. For our brothers and sisters in India, in China, in the Middle East, and around the world who are suffering because of their faith, Lord, we pray for your peace, for your joy, 
for the hope of salvation to come, that your kingdom would be present in those countries and around the world. God, we pray for our country where the church seems so divided. God, unite us in Christ. Bring us to a place of repentance and unity, that we would see our unity in Christ, that we would be driven to live godly, dignified, and virtuous lives, reflecting the image of Christ to the world for the salvation of the nations. God, we pray for the church in our state and in our city, that the church in Atlanta diverse and beautiful, would reflect your glory and your grace to this city, that this city might know the flourishing of your kingdom. Lord, in each of our hearts, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, we do lift up our leaders for President Trump and Vice President Pence, for their families, for their cabinet. God, we pray for your salvation to come. We pray that they would experience your grace that they would know the presence of your spirit, that they would know the salvation that comes from the Lord. Lord, we pray that as power is transitioned this week, we pray for your peace, we pray for your mercy, and we pray for justice to be done. God, we lift up uh, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris for their cabinets, for their families. Lord, likewise, we pray that they would experience your presence and your grace, that as they step into the role of stewarding this country, Lord, they would do it with you as king and for you as king. Lord, give them wisdom, uh, give them courage to lead well, give them the faith and the trust to honor you in all that they do. Likewise, Lord, for our legislators in the Senate, in the House, From all around this country, Lord, representing their districts, may they steward those districts and those states well. May they know your salvation. May they know that you, Lord Jesus, are king over all the earth. God, for our state, we pray for the state of Georgia, for Governor Kemp, for the legislator, legislature. God, we pray for your mercy. We pray for a knowledge of your kingdom. We pray for the right to be done and the wrong to be suppressed. God, we pray above all that you would be glorified and that we as a state would flourish. And God, for this city, for your church to do her work, we pray for Mayor Bottoms, for the city council. Lord, that they would know your grace and your mercy. Lord, that they would acknowledge you as Savior, that they would recognize their stewardship of this city for your glory and for your kingdom. God, we pray for this world that is still in the throes of a pandemic. God, we pray for healing. We pray for wisdom for doctors and nurses and researchers. God, we pray for the endurance of your church body, united virtually and throughout time and space, because nothing, Lord, can separate us from your love. Not rulers, not principalities, not viruses. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, be glorified in our lives. May we live lives of dignity and honor, bringing honor to you and grace to our neighbors that your kingdom would come here in our city and around the world. Hear us as we pray in Christ's name.